If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll recall that we have um, wrapped up a couple of significant chapters where Jesus' public ministry goes from um, this time when he's doing some miracles, but he's asking his disciples not to say it. Um, he's keeping it rather quiet. And then at the Feast of the Tabernacles, it seems to really ramp up. He stands up in that feast and proclaims his identity as the Messiah. And so with that, things are accelerating, tensions are mounting. Everything from Jesus' um, human identity, his deity, the source of his wisdom, his understanding of Jewish history from last week where they um, said, we are, we've never been slaves. And Jesus is telling them that they have, in fact. Jesus' obedience to their understanding of the Old Testament law is coming up again today and a couple weeks ago with his Sabbath observance and their perspective that he does not obey the Sabbath. And Jesus, in a way that is unique to him, he's answering all of their questions. He speaks to their hearts of disbelief, leaves them speechless with his teachings, and then right when they intend to kill him at the last verse that we saw at the end of chapter 8, he just disappears. So that all brings us up, catches us up to John chapter 9, which, um, if you've been listening to the words that we sang this morning, um, stories that I heard just now while we were shaking hands and greeting one another, um, this chapter, the next 22 verses for this morning, and then Pat's going to continue it next week, is so incredibly relevant to what's going on today in our world, in our lives, this week. So with that, let's pray, and then we will read these first 22 verses together. Father, uh, you're doing so much in this world. You're doing a lot in this church and in our lives, and um, this text is so full of relevant truth that we need. I pray that for each of the people that are here today, that each of us would be um, taught by your word, that you would bring us to that place, um, you would reveal our blindnesses to us, um, you would help us to love one another the way that you have commanded us to do that in your church. Um, give me this uh, stammering, slow tongue, give me clarity um, as I bring your word to your people. May you be praised for all of that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm gonna ask you to stand as we read John chapter nine. I'm gonna read the first 22 verses. Follow along with me. John nine, verse one. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You may be seated. So for many of us, this might feel like a familiar text. This might be um, relatively simple. Jesus shows up. He sees a man who is blind. He heals him. Um, The man is happy that he's received his sight. The Jews are upset that Jesus did this good thing on the Sabbath. They're divided. And then eventually, Jesus and this blind man, this formerly blind man, reconvene, and the man comes to faith in Jesus, not just as a healer, but as the Messiah. And that summary captures the flow of the text in part. But I think as diligent readers of Scripture, um, we are going to see that there is far more here today. The title of today's message was titled Questions and Answered. Uh, I think I decided that that was a little boring. So I retitled it Suffering, Blindness, Sabbath, and New Creation, which is probably... um, an overcorrection. So, <laughs> if you're taking notes, you can use either title. Um, let me stir your minds with some questions from this text before we get into the, the meat of the sermon. The question that we are initially confronted with is why does suffering exist in this world? And not what caused it, because we probably, most of us, know that. Sin came into the world, and that's why we live in a broken world. That's not what I'm asking. What purpose does suffering have in this world? The next question is, why does Jesus do these healings on the Sabbath? In John John 5 and here in John 9, Jesus does this on the Sabbath. It's not a coincidence anymore. There's something intentional about that. 
And then the third question, that's my question as I've read this um, since I was really young, why does Jesus use mud and spit to heal this man's eyes? Like he could just, he could just take away his blindness and he chooses to use mud and spit. So question number one as we get into this. The disciples question, why was this man born blind? Verses one and two, they see this man who's blind from birth and the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so as we look into the nature of this question, the disciples are not asking this um, with ignorance. They know that God is good. They are intentionally protecting God from being implicated in some wrongdoing. So they ask a specific question, whose fault is it that this guy is blind? Surely it's because somebody sinned. Was it this guy sinning in some previous life or something like that? Or was it that his parents did something wrong and so the judgment against their sin was that their son be born blind? Which has a significant impact in that day and age, especially on a family's well-being. Why did this happen, Jesus? What about this problem of evil in the world? And as I have engaged in evangelism and conversations with people over the last, especially over the last couple years, this question has kind of come to the surface more frequently for me than any other question. People who are not religious, their their, um, pushback on God, Jesus, Christianity, the gospel, all of those things, more than any other objection that they have, is not the resurrection. It's not even like scripture's trustworthiness. It's how can a God who is powerful and good allow all of this evil in our world, allow all this suffering? And I don't think that there's a short answer to that question. We know that evil is terrible, and it takes a unique shape in all of our unique lives. And the nature of this question from the disciples, it was specific. They gave Jesus two options, neither of which was to blame God. And Jesus responds in a way that is um, unexpected, unpredictable, and yet still true to everything that we know about God. So what is Jesus' answer? He says, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, neither of those two options, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Essentially, Jesus says, this man was born blind so that God could be seen. This man was born blind so that God could be seen. So who is this, um, what does this um, situation allow for God to be seen by two different people? First, we see this man. He goes from blinded to seeing, and then eventually he goes from seeing to believing. And the next, this work that Jesus does, this miracle, is seen by others. The disciples, the Jews, this man's parents, and then all of us here today who read this. We see this work. So if you're reading along in our Abide reading plan, um, you might not have been able to resist reading the rest of chapter 9 this week. First, there's this physical healing, a trip to the pool of Siloam to wash, this follow-up meeting, where Jesus goes and finds the man and asks him some follow-up questions, not just about being able to see, but about what he believes about the Son of Man, about the Messiah. 
And all these people in this story, they all have the same evidence. The guy, it's pretty sure the guy was born blind from birth. Jesus healed him. And yet not all of them believe. It happens on the Sabbath. The parents, they get really passive. They deflect. Oh, just ask him because we're afraid. And the text doesn't specifically answer every question or every circumstance of our suffering that we observe in this world. And I think that God does that on purpose. We don't get all of those answers in this life. But here, we get a glimpse. There's a crack where the door opens just a little bit, and we see how God does what he does. So why does suffering exist in this world? In this one case, we see that this man's blindness was the birthplace of his belief. We see that through his suffering, he was brought closer to God. We'll come back to that at the end. Question number two is this Sabbath question. Look in verse 16 and verse 17. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. So the Sabbath question, there are plenty of days in the week, and this is not a coincidence anymore. Jesus is intentionally doing these miracles of healing on the Sabbath. As I think through this whole Sabbath question, it's, it's a complex um, discussion because as you go back and you look at the Sabbath throughout the Old Testament and getting to hear there is a day, this was a day with many regulations with purpose, and I kind of tend to think um, what we know from rabbinical traditions as you study those is this Sabbath um, observance was a little bit like our modern tax laws, right? So we know, more or less, that governments need taxes to function. But what we also know, especially you income earners, um, is over time, first you're getting taxed on things you buy, then you're getting taxed on things you sell, then you're getting taxed on the money you make, and then you're getting taxed on other people dying, um, and it just becomes this like overgrown thing. So don't get all wound up about taxes. If you're like me, that can, that can uh, get you pretty fired up, so take a moment, okay? Um, back to the Sabbath, all right? The same thing happens over time. What the Sabbath represented, we're gonna talk about that, what it represented initially, and then what its requirements were, But by the time we get to Jesus' day, there are all of these amendments, all of these attachments to these expectations that we don't find in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Genesis. We don't find them in Scripture. There are all these extra rules. Some of them may be even prohibiting spitting on the Sabbath. I'm not sure about that. Some people think so. But what we know about this Sabbath observance is that it was the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In Exodus, this was reflected back to God's um, decision to create the world um, and order it 
in six literal days and then to rest on the seventh. That's what we believe. And then in Deuteronomy, it's much more reflective, this Sabbath um, command is much more reflective of a future Sabbath when there will be rest from the toil and the brokenness and the difficulties of this world. So what does Jesus say? What is his answer to this Sabbath topic? And I think we find Jesus' answer well before they ask the question back in verses four and five. So look with me at verses four and five. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So three observations from Jesus' mission here because that's how he responds. Our mission is to do God's work. Jesus, observation number one, he includes his disciples in this mission. So you look at verse four, how does Jesus start? We, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. He's including the disciples and his followers. We are part of the mission that God is doing. Not because God needs us, but just because he decides, he delights in using people like you and me to do his work in this world. And the next, he has two types of urgencies. The first type, urgency of opportunity. He says, now while I am here, now is day, now is the time. Jesus is at work and he's busy with the mission that God sent him to earth to complete. Regardless, I think regardless of what day of the week it is, Jesus is about doing his mission. He is the light of the world, he says. He is the daylight by which his mission can be completed. And the second type of urgency is urgency in limitation. He says, the night is coming when we will no longer be able to do this work. God's redemptive work is not yet done, but the night is coming. The principle is that the time that we have been given, that Jesus had been given, must be redeemed. There's urgency there. It's time to do it. The fields are ready for harvest, and waiting even a moment can result in loss. So he's not simply, I don't think he's simply just trolling the Pharisees and the Jews by doing these works on the Sabbath just to make people upset. But he's teaching them about the true meaning of the Sabbath. So what is that true meaning of the Sabbath? I hinted at this a little bit earlier. Let's look back at the history of the Sabbath through the Bible. In Genesis, we are given Sabbath roots. So what we see is that um, the Sabbath, God did this creative work, and on the seventh day he rested. Sin has not come into the world yet. The world is still perfect. He's created Adam and Eve. They're naming the animals. This was before the fall. So as image bearers, these humans then mimic God's, um, God's pattern of resting on a weekly basis. And even now, we are all keenly aware of the necessity of rest. Many of us have worked, um, worked ourselves too hard, right? We have gone after it, and you just, and there's, in, especially in our day and age, between sports and work and a lot of good things, church, small group, relationships, family, all these things can just really fill up our calendar and you only do that for, well, some of us do it for a couple weeks, some of us do it for a couple months, maybe a couple years, but eventually all of us reach a point where we are just, it's too much. We have to stop. And it causes us to, to think back, 
that humans are not created to go, go, go all the time. We see that, those roots in how we were created in Genesis. But then in Deuteronomy, as God's people are brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, we are given Sabbath requirements. The Sabbath was a tool to help God's people remember that he was still working after the fall. He was still working and leading them into a future rest. Just as God had led his children out of Egypt, he was leading them into this promised land. He would someday lead them back into the type of rest that existed before sin entered into the world. So Sabbath roots, Sabbath requirements, and then in the Gospels, we see Jesus, and we meet the ruler of the Sabbath. This is the individual who would lead God's people into their eternal Sabbath rest. And this leader, this ruler, was none other than God himself, the creator, Jesus Christ. And in these Gospels, not in John specifically, these two texts, but in these Gospels, we see Jesus do this teaching. He says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in Luke 6.5, he said to them, the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. This final Sabbath is talked about in Hebrews chapter 4. The whole chapter. I'm not going to read it today. But in Hebrews 4 9, it says, There remains yet a Sabbath rest for the people of God, which is speaking of the new creation. Heaven, this eternal state where God will have fully restored his creation back to its sinless beauty. Christ's atonement and resurrection is just the beginning of the resurrections that will follow in the eternal state. So Jesus is doing this healing on the Sabbath as a token of what he's doing. He's doing this work of recreation. He is restoring the world away from the brokenness which corrupts it into a new type of place, back into the garden. So with that, question number three, this is, this is my question. Maybe some of you had the same question. Why does Jesus use mud and spit to heal this man? So if you think of, you know, what, you, what some of you, maybe what little you know of Josh, think of Josh as a little kid reading this, and this guy is blind, so he has no warning, maybe, you know. He's sitting there blind, has no idea, and then Jesus puts mud on his face. And it just kind of seems like a, maybe a little bit of a humiliating thing. Anybody with me in that, or I just have a warped sense of humor? I was an older brother, so I did things like that, you know? <laughs> um, I just see this guy sitting here, and then Jesus puts mud on his face. Why would he heal him that way? Well, John 9 doesn't explicitly answer this question, but if you're reading Scripture as a unified whole, I think we'll find this answer in a way that's actually quite plain. And it is beautiful because it alludes to the gospel in chapter 9 here. Jesus, in this, in this section, we see that Jesus gives this man light. He gives him the gift of sight. But at the cross, we know that Jesus takes on darkness. Jesus will experience the blindness of separation from his Father on our behalf 
so that we didn't have to. Through his atonement, he makes a way for us to be united with God once again, the relationship that was lost by our father Adam in the garden. So another flashback to this creation era. Jesus will suffer for his bride, the church, where Adam had joined his bride in disobedience to God. So where is all of this in John chapter 9? It's, um, interestingly, it's in the mud and in the spit. Jesus is making all things new. He's taking away the blindness of the world, not just this man's physical blindness, but he's doing something in salvation that is far more um, broad than just giving this man healed sight. So let me make this more clear. Um, You remember like being a three-year-old, doing three-year-old chemistry in your backyard. You say, as a three-year-old, you say to your five-year-old sibling, how do we make mud? And your five-year-old sibling gets a big smile on their face, looks over their shoulder, makes sure mom's not looking because they're a little smarter than you. And then they say, turn on the hose and I'll show you. Here's how we make mud. Another lesson, probably later on life, um, learning to spit. All right, most of us probably got the idea of learning to spit from our dad. Um, I don't think most of us probably learned to spit from our moms, but if you did, you know, that's, um, I suppose that's possible. You see your dad spit, and you're kind of like, oh, that must be what cool people do. So I want to learn to spit. The first couple times you do it, all right, if you're not, you know, you don't know how to spit, so you're kind of practicing, because you, you probably don't ask, you just start trying. And if you don't use enough air, enough breath, you just get saliva down your shirt. So you move past that stage of spitting, and eventually you become a proficient spitter. And you learn that spit is made up of both saliva and air. So now I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, we read this creation account, and then in Genesis chapter 2, we get another repeat of this with a little bit more details. So read with me Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." So here in this text, Jesus uses the dust of the ground, dirt. He uses saliva, and then he uses air because that's how you make spit. These three things, and he makes this mud with which he puts on the man's eyes and gives him his sight. In the same way that God created man from the dust of the earth that was covered with mist and then breathed into him the breath of life. In that same way, Jesus uses mud and spit to undo the darkness of this man's sight and give him the light of life. Um, there are other good people that believe this as well, so I didn't just make this up, if, you, if that makes any of you feel better. Now that we rightly understand what Jesus is doing, that Jesus' use of spit and mud to heal the man It all loses its humiliation factor. It's no longer weird that he took spit and mud and put it on this guy's face. 
and it takes on a supernatural, beautiful reality that points us to yet another good thing that Jesus is doing as part of God's redeeming work in a broken world. And it's not a coincidence. This is all prophesied, actually, in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, blindness and then the blind people receiving their sight had always been connected to the promise of the Messiah coming and fixing what was broken. So we don't have time to go through all of those, but let's go to Isaiah 42. I will read this. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9. And listen for these themes of creation, of blindness, of healing. Both physical blindness is healed, but it's a metaphor for spiritual blindness. And this is what Jesus is doing in John chapter 9. So Isaiah 42 Thus says God, Isaiah is speaking to God's people in the era of Hezekiah. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and whose spirit and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you righteous. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, this is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then later in that chapter, verse 16, he says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. So Jesus puts the mud on this man's face, and he sends them to this pool that John tells us is also named Sent. Interestingly, it's because, as, Jesus, um, as Jason preached a couple weeks ago, the history behind this pool of Siloam, if you remember, you can go back and um, listen to that sermon, but there's history behind this pool where it has um, sourced from water that was outside the city during this time of Hezekiah, Isaiah's time, where this water was brought into the city to bring in uh, fresh, clean water for them. And that's where Jesus sends this man to wash. And so he goes and washes and he receives his sight. And finally, at the end of Isaiah 42, he also uses this metaphor of blindness for unbelief. He connects it to those people who do not believe in the Messiah, who do not accept God. And then Jesus refers to that in John 9, 39. Pat's gonna preach on this next week, so I'm not gonna steal too much from him. But Jesus says at the end of this chapter, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So it is with this backdrop of Sabbath rest that we see that Jesus is doing a work of recreation because it's not the Sabbath yet in the eternal view if you zoom out. He is busy making a new humanity a new type of people who are not simply ethnic offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called Israel. No, 
God is making a new people who are united with him through faith in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. They are given new life from their belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is doing this now with all sorts of unlikely, undeserving people like me and like you. So application, as we wrap up, how do we apply this? How do we obey this? We've learned a lot. We read a lot about the Sabbath, how to make mud, okay? We know these things. But how does, how does this impact me this afternoon or tomorrow? And it's shockingly um, relevant, I think. So I have four points of application. The first one is that um, for us, we should not fear. Don't be afraid of suffering. Don't be afraid of blindness and these evil things that happen in the world. Those things, those events, can and should bring people. This is unexpected, but those events can bring people and should bring people closer to God. Um, Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, has been enormously helpful in my life. And so Keller categorized suffering into four different types. The first type he talks about is suffering is reaping of your own consequences. Before reading this book, I had never really considered that as like legitimate suffering because I tended to um, qualify suffering as something that's not really your fault. But thanks to Tim Keller, I think of that a little differently now. And as someone who's experienced suffering, um, I would tell you that most of my suffering in this world has been at my own um, reaping the consequences of my own sin. The reaping of shame and guilt is what drove me to God because I was desperately in need of forgiveness for my wickedness. And it was through that internal torture, primarily, like I said, a sense of guilt and isolation. I couldn't tell anybody that I could only prostrate myself before a holy God and beg for some relief from the shame that overwhelmed me. And it was all self-inflicted, but God used it to drive me to the cross. The second um, type of suffering is one, these are generalities, of course, but one where you've experienced suffering from other people, from other people attacking you or sinning against you. Sheep bite, it seems. And the response of that is not as much um, shame and guilt, but really anger and bitterness towards other people. A third form of suffering is more general that probably we all experience to some degree, and it's the type of suffering that's a result of sickness, illness, um, death of yourself, your own fear of death, death of a loved one. And these are basically unavoidable in our broken world. And the response without God is that that can make us really afraid and give us paralyzing grief. And then the fourth category that Keller has is the suffering from unpredictable events like war or shootings. And those are the types of things that can lead to frustration or anger that's directed at God. So pick up the book and read it. I'm not going to try and preview that here. But from a point of application, I want to read and summarize one of his concluding paragraphs on how to deal with suffering in 
the church, in the community of faith. This is from the end of Keller's book. He says, we should not shirk community. Suffering can be enormously isolating. The early church communities were famously good places to be a suffering person. Christians died well, the early church authors claimed, not because they were rugged individuals, but because the church was a place of unparalleled sympathy and support. Gospel doctrine makes it impossible to grow many miserable comforters like Job's moralistic friends. The Christian gospel accounts for and assigns meaning to the experience of suffering that a secular society cannot. Find a Christian church where sufferers are loved and supported. And so with that, I would say, if you are not in a redemption group, all of you have heard the invitation, if you've been here more than once, you've heard the invitation to be part of a redemption group, but I would encourage you, if you're not in one, to get in one. If not for your own health, if not because your own perceived like need of that, there are people in those groups who need you. Get in a redemption group. Be a part of community for your eventual suffering, because we all will go through that as part of life, but also for the suffering of others who are in it now. Number two is protection. The closer you are to God, the better you understand him. And this is laid out really well in Psalm 23, probably the most well-known psalm in that book. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it paints this picture, this psalm paints this picture of closeness to God, where your joy, your satisfaction, your ability to not be afraid is not dependent on your circumstances, but it is dependent on your proximity to the Lord. Whether you're walking in green pastures where everything seems really good, whether you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death where everything seems really, really bad, whether you're in the presence of your enemies and yet God is still taking care of you and treating you like royalty. All of those circumstances are irrelevant if we are to stay in proximity to God. Our comfort is found in our closeness to our shepherd, not in the circumstances around us. The third one is for mission, for evangelism. Suffering, as we have seen in this chapter, as we've seen Jesus work out, and as you do evangelism, as you share the gospel with other people, remember this. Suffering, this is unexpected. Suffering is not actually an obstacle to overcome in evangelism, but it is a bridge that God uses to bring people to himself. I don't expect that. I was telling somebody this morning. I, I think when I see people that I'm sharing the gospel with and then bad things happen in their life, I just expect them to get really mad at God. Because to me, that makes like logical sense. But what we see in scripture, what you might remember from, I think it was last week's message that Jason spoke really quickly on the four types of soil that the gospel falls on, some of that soil is hard, stony ground. For that soil to ever be able to receive the seed of the gospel, it might need a hurricane to come through and tear it all up. So, in mission, in evangelism, see suffering that other people who are not yet believers encounter. See that as something that God might be using to prepare them for a relationship with himself. 
when you encounter someone who's in suffering, lean in. Because we remember the quote from C.S. Lewis, God shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone in a deaf world. Coming to Christ, coming to faith in Christ, is typically a progressive process. It happens in stages. Very few people turn on a dime and go from never thinking a thought about sin and judgment and hell and eternity and then just immediately come to faith in Christ. Most people go through steps to get there. And that's something that God does. It is a supernatural act. So don't give up on those in your life whose heart looks like stony ground. God is often working in those people's hearts long before even they are aware of it. And like we saw today, it was through blindness that God was seen. And the last one is discipleship, encouraging one another. Regarding this spiritual blindness, we ought to pray for one another. We see in John 9, we see this man go from this initial stage of physical blindness and then coming to know Jesus. But we also see later on in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul speaks to Christians. He speaks to Christians and he says to them on this topic of their eyes being opened, here's what he says to Christians. He prays for them that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So you might see like this man did. Later on in the story, he could see with his eyes, but he still said to the people, that guy that you call Jesus, the man who is called Jesus, and then later on he says, well, I think he's a prophet, and it was much later that he says, I believe in the Son of Man. And then Paul prays this prayer for Christians around you. Pray for one another because we are people in process. Right? Once you come to faith, it's not like you know everything. We are being sanctified probably much slower than we would want. It's really slow for me. And I'm impatient. So I cover your prayers and you need each other's prayers. We need to pray for one another that we would have our blindness slowly taken away. And that's what the Apostle Paul prays for these, even these believers in Ephesians. So, with that, let's pray, and then I'll invite the band up to close us. God, thank you for the gift that is John chapter 9, where you overwhelm us with these images of new creation, of blindness and suffering. You give us a peek into how you use even the things that we really don't like to be seen by others. You show us yourself even in suffering. So for those who are here today who um, are, have friends who are going through suffering, for those who are suffering themselves, for those who are afraid of future suffering because we feel like it's this inevitable thing that's going to happen to us, I just pray that we would be a church that is confident. We have faith that we can draw near to you 
and that when we are in close proximity to you, if we draw near to you, you will be true to be close to us and that you will be our comforter. You will be the rock on which we stand. Jesus, we love you. You are the light of this world. We pray that you would give us grace and discipline um, and energy to share that gospel with the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.